Welcome to Season 4 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership education, training, and development. Interested in keeping up with the leaders' conversations across the leadership discipline? Want to add more to your resource toolbox with practical strategies for teaching, learning, and program design without changing your routine? Well, this is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you don't never miss an episode. Welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And I'm Dan Jenkins, Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And we are so excited for this episode of the podcast. We are joined today by Drs. Krista Soria and Matthew Johnson. Welcome, Krista and Matt. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. So Krista and Matt just completed co-editing a very, very recent issue of New Directions for Student Leadership titled Evidence-Based Practices to Strengthen Leadership Development. I'm super excited about, about this one, not only because I had the honor of, of being a contributing author with, with Dave Rosh over at University of Illinois, who wasn't just a great writing partner, but also a, a great friend and just loved seeing how, the, how this came together and really excited to dive into some conversation with y'all, learn a little bit more about the process and, and what y'all learned and some of your hopes and dreams for how the issue will be used by leadership educators and practitioners. But before we get into that, I'd love to start with basically your, your origin stories. Like, how did you become a leadership educator? Like, how did you get into this, into this work? And, and what are you kind of currently doing at your institutions? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I started working at the University of Minnesota in institutional research as a quantitative data analyst, and I quickly started connecting with folks in student affairs because I had a student affairs background and we didn't have a very formal partnership. One of the first people that I got to meet was actually the director of the leadership minor program here at the university who said, you should start teaching in our leadership minor program. And so I went through training and got involved um, in leadership education here at the University of Minnesota. Uh, I will also share uh, just kind of for fun that I met Matt at an ASH conference. This was, um, I don't know, a decade ago by now, Matt, it was a while ago, but our research interests just kept aligning um, in so many really powerful and wonderful ways. And so that is how we ended up um, partnering together on a number of research projects uh, over the last couple of years. Um, but we just kept talking the same you know, language and having the same research interests related to leadership, diversity, civic engagement, community engagement. And we have those mutual interests together, which is how we ended up uh, forming our research partnership um, a number of years ago. But that's essentially how I got involved in leadership education and have really invested a lot of time and energy into leadership research as a consequence. Yeah, I appreciate that story. I, I can still remember the time that uh, Chris and I were presenting independent papers and we were really critical and remain critical of the high impact practice group that was out there that, you know, do these 10 high impact practices. And we were both presenting papers that said, well, maybe not so fast, maybe not for everybody, and maybe it doesn't work for these type of outcomes. And I remember she tapped me on the shoulder and she said, hey, we should be friends and we should write together and do research. And um, yeah, it's been almost a decade of us uh, being friends in researching and writing together. So that that came true. I started, I was uh, like a lot of people who I think get into leadership education work. I was a student leader and I was president of the fratern my fraternity and president of student government. And I had almost no critical thought whatsoever of what I was doing. I didn't know leadership education existed, theories, models. 
And it wasn't until I was going to graduate school for student affairs and I uh, got a call for an assistantship from Dr. Denny Roberts, who is a, a well-known leadership educator. And uh, he hired me to do this work in fraternity and sorority life. And I was on the road as a fraternity consultant. And he said, well, we're doing this uh, deliberative work in fraternity and sorority life and infusing leadership. And, uh, you know, I'd like to offer you a job. I, of course, accepted. And he said, well, what sort of theories or models are you most familiar with? What are you operating from? And I said, uh, and I still saved this email. This was 2004. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what do you mean? And he said, oh, okay, well, I know the starting place now. And so, you know, that was 2004. And so the last 17 years has been me working in formal leadership development. And then I'm an associate professor now. And like Krista, study the impact of college on students related to outcomes related to leadership and these related capacities for democratic engagement and social perspective taking and that kind of stuff. I'd also like to add that when I started my position in institutional research, it was about 2010, and we had already administered the multi-institutional study of leadership a couple of times on our campus in 2006 and 2009, and my boss at the time, my supervisor in institutional research, handed me a CD of data from the MSL that nobody had really actually dug into or analyzed at our institution, and so he said, hey, I'd like you to you know, unpack this, you know, these data and just see what you can find and make some connections with folks as well. And so that's also how I got an early introduction into the MSL survey and, you know, engaging in, in those types of research, that engaging in that particular data set for um, research related to students' leadership outcomes as well. So that was kind of a fun part of my early beginning. I had never heard of MSL. And again, it was on a CD, it was just, here you go, here's your data that somebody had had in a drawer. It was literally dusty, like I dusted it off. Um, and, and that's how I started to work more intentionally with folks on my own campus with really looking at uh, students' outcomes as they're associated with leadership development on my own campus. And right now I'm the, the director for student affairs assessment at the University of Minnesota, where I still engage in, now I help to administer the MSL on my campus and really help people to make good use of the MSL data. I was very fortunate this past year to use MSL data in our accreditation check-in with the Higher Learning Commission. And so I'm really trying to like bring the data dry as much as I can on my own campus because it's such a valuable source of data for us, for sure. I feel like we could have a separate conversation about MSL. I was in the same boat you are. I took over the leadership director position and was handed, I, I was fortunate if I had a print copy of a binder that, you know, I couldn't even hold in two hands. And they were like, oh, here's some data. And I remember looking at this like, what is this? Oh, okay. You want me to do what? But you're right. It's such a rich resource. And I think at the time they were on, I think two or they were on three year cycles. So at least you had some time to review, implement, assess, and then jump into the next cycle for MSL. Um, you know, it, it's so interesting that you shared how y'all came together, because one of the questions, you know, we were thinking about is kind of how did you work together to get get all of this coordinated to publish this issue? Um, it seems like you were friends and you had a great publishing relationship before. So it, it seems like it was natural for you two to take on this together. Does that sound right? Or like, can you walk us through your process, maybe? Yeah, I guess I can. I can feel that one. Yeah. You know, we. I don't think we've ever had any length of time where we weren't working on something and, and we all know and what publication looks like and 
from the time you conceptualize an idea till the time it's out can be a year or two or three. Um, and in some cases, even longer than that. And so, you know, we were working on a bunch of different stuff. We um, had a couple of pieces out that got some traction that are critical of high impact practices and really showing their shortcomings and how they uh, we struggle to find relationships or statistically significant relationships between some of these things that are purported uh, for either different groups or different settings or or not the relationship that we think. And so we um, sort of had this relationship and had this scholarship out there and putting that out in, in certain places. We sometimes affectionately refer to ourselves as high impact practices, killjoys, where we're, we're the ones kind of poking the hole in the saying, hey, not for everybody, or hey, you ought to think about what community service really looks like, because there's all kinds of power differentials, and just extolling the virtues of it for leadership, and just people going out and doing it, probably not sound practice. And so we'd had that out there, we'd had the relationship, we'd had several pieces out there, and then when we got an email from Susan Comavez, who was my former advisor at Maryland's, uh, who I worked on the multi-institutional study of leadership for years, and then Kathy Guthrie, um, we texted each other and we're like, yeah, let's totally do this. We're like everybody and overcommitted and uh, don't have a ton of time to do it, but we could totally do this. And we, we love working with each other. Um, we were pretty drama free. We support each other how we need to be supported. We both have uh, young kids and, uh, you know, we're both parents and, and have a lot of other constraints on our time. And we were like, this is, we always say yes to working with each other because it's just such a good experience. And we just dug right in. We already had the shared Dropbox folder called Matt and Krista's Research that has several subfolders on there. We texted and we were like, absolutely, this sounds like a great experience. Yeah, I absolutely concur. I also feel like when Susan Comavez says jump, uh, one should say, how high, Susan, right? And so, um, you know, for her to help us make this connection with each other and with some of the authors, I think was, um, you know, was, was very much a gift and helped to initiate and launch a lot of this research as well. At the time when we started having these initial conversations, um, I have a little baby at home, two months old. I mean, I remember having meetings, just holding my baby. <laughs> and now I have a two-year-old toddler at home. And so that's also an indication of, I think, how much time passes um, with, you know, beginning these conversations to having an end product in mind as well. Um, but I absolutely agree. Working with Matt is one of the highlights in my professional career, hands down. And the opportunity to do it anytime, the opportunity to work together comes our way. Um, you know, I it's always a yes for me. Um, if we can make it happen, it's always a yes. For sure. I, I love how keen, well, and totally agree with you about what you said about Susan. And, and I love to watch how Susan and Kathy have been so, I guess, you know, strategic and just like, I guess, like heartfelt with not only bringing together authors that they think should work together because they've kind of see opportunities or possibilities because of overlaps in some of their work, but also folks that have kind of been in the same space together for a long time, but haven't had an opportunity to really do something like you mentioned how the two of you have been, you know, kind of in the same space and, and been working on various projects for you know a decade or so. It was similar that, you know, Carrie Priest was somebody I met at my first like ALE conference in like 2010 or 2011. And, you know, we had worked on things here and there, but never really like dove into a project and the new direction actually just ended up being just an amazing partnership and, and just learned so much from, from her and, and about the writing process and, and what have you. So as you think about this special issue, so 
Susan and Kathy reached out to you. Like, I know they always have a vision that they kind of share with, Hey, we have an idea. You've, you've had some com- communication or conversation about, um, and, and thinking about evidence-based practices. So once you kind of wrapped your head around that, what was the process that you used to ideate different author combinations of, Hey, you know, we, you know, MSL, Hey, let's grab, let's grab John Dugan. Uh, what's he doing over at the Aspen Institute right now? Let's, let's reach out to Connor. Let's reach out to, you know, to the folks, uh, was it Lindsay and, and, um, and Hannah over at, at Nebraska? I mean, how, how did these different chapter ideas kind of come into y'all's heads? That's a great, that's a great question. One of the, the principles that we teach in our leadership minor program here at the University of Minnesota is that relationships are the currency of power. And so I think a lot of the the selection of the authors and reaching out to folks had to do with the fact that we knew so many folks already. So I had met you and I had met uh, Dave Rosh at a conference and I had um, Connor uh, Johnson was somebody who uh, um, he uh, connected with me at a conference. I met V at a conference. I mean, it, we sort of have this like small group of folks. Um, I think it's a Connor Johnson, Connor McLaughlin. Um, and so I, you know, connecting with these folks in so many different places um, it is for me what I wanted to give people opportunities. I knew that there was a lot of capacity um, in, in terms of talent and skills and writing and research interests. And so for me, it was really connecting with a lot of folks that we knew in addition to giving new opportunities to folks whom we hadn't formally collaborated with as well. Um, And so we were really keen on um, encouraging authors to connect with graduate students and to, you know, make those connections happen where we could. Um, But for me, absolutely, the relationships that we had already established with a lot of folks, that was one catalyst for reaching out to individuals and then um, asking them to, um, to write their particular topics. Yeah, and I was really, you know, thoughtful around this, you know, we came together with this idea around critiques around power in evidence-based practices and who has access and who benefits differently. And those conversations about who we tap were on the forefront of our minds because, you know, as a, as a white man, I didn't want the usual suspects of all the white men dominating the issue, right? Because that would just be reifying and perpetuating the thing that we're supposedly in our scholarship trying to critique. And so we had lots of good conversations around you know, um, who, who we should go after and what we should try to um, encourage them to do to reach out with different people and try to balance con- contributions around things like race and gender in particular were, were really important. And so we also wanted the, you know, the usual suspects, some of those are important to, to have, but also some people who hadn't written for publication before. And we have a couple people, um, the, the Nikki Messmore and the um, Jess Davis chapter, I believe they said this at the time, neither one of them had written for publication before. And so we were thrilled to bring people like that. And we have graduate students and assistant professors and clinical professors. And so we really wanted to be able to do that. So when we got to the end of this, it was something that uh, was more inclusive of voices than maybe other previous work had been. Yeah, I think that's one of the great opportunities. And, and I think that's something that, that Kathy and Susan do a good job of empowering is, because I know Carrie and I experiences that, is we have this platform to get some of these voices out there from to be representative of this just wide body. I mean, we've, we even had practitioners from, from Canada, you know, as part of the, and, and I'd love to see even more international voices in some of these new directions. But, you know, we had everything from a student who had just graduated one of our master's programs and works in extension education in Lisbon, Maine, all, all the way to full professors, you know, that were... And, and deans that were 
uh, contributing to to different uh, chapters in the, in the publication. And it's it really is great to see just to to be the designers of, of this type of uh, of ultimate you know expose or what, or what have you, and, and see it go through the process and be able to work with just some of these amazing minds and and feel good about them having the opportunity to share their their work with the greater leadership educator community. So you have me thinking about, and I'm trying to think the best way to kind of articulate this. So I, I love, first of all, that anytime that there's literature out there that focuses on the how, I geek out like crazy because I want to know like, okay, like we have all, you know, we're spending billions in leadership development and organizations all over the globe. And, you know, it depends what you read, Forbes or Harvard Business or whatever. They're going to give you a different statistic on how much money we're spending on this, but what's actually going on in leadership development programs and how do we know that we're being effective? When I asked this question in um, some research that I, that I uh, published in Journal of Leadership Education over the last couple of years and reported some of this data, I literally asked these folks that I had interviewed, um, how do you know you're being effective? Like, what are some of the, the things that that you think, uh, you know, contribute to, to that? And, and more often than not, leadership educators said something to the effect of like, well, students tell me. They just a year later, a semester later, whatever, students tell me. But is that really, like, can't we do better than that? And so I, I'm thinking about this idea of evidence-based practices, and you are very keen in how you distinguish that from high-impact practices in particular, but we also use the term like best practices as well. So, and as you mentioned too, Dave and I, like we, uh, in, in your closing chapter, Dave, Dave uh, Rosh and I, we critiqued a lot of what we do in the classroom um, as well. And that felt really yucky. You know, we're critiquing things like, I don't know, that's probably the best, you know, collegial word, scholarly word I can use, yucky, about like discussion and some of these other pedagogies, because just because we use them doesn't necessarily mean they're effective. So I, I guess it's a roundabout way of asking you, like, how did you get to using this terminology, evidence-based practices? And, and what were some of the things that, that you learned as you were going through these chapters that looked at mentoring, community-engaged learning, trauma-informed pedagogy, you know, co-curricular? I mean, just I, I think this is going to have such staying power, this particular issue. So one thing that I will offer in response is we have these four propositions in our conceptual framework that we developed as a consequence of reviewing the existing leadership literature. But I will also share that we are hopeful that folks will interrogate those propositions because, of course, they're based on existing research, which is full of limitations left and right. And so as we continue to engage more in leadership practices and become more critical of these practices, I hope that folks will take these four propositions and advance them and move them forward. And they are, for instance, that having experiential opportunities is very useful in developing students' leadership capacities. Working with others is critical to this process. Increased cognitive complexity of the leadership tasks will widen students' worldviews, and students don't benefit ubiquitously from leadership programs that are designed to be a one-size-fit-all type of a model. And so, you know, we, we put forth those big, broad ideas in our conceptual framework that I hope people will take and first assess, do their leadership programs meet those sort of propositions or qualifications? But then also ask themselves, uh, you know, those critical questions of uh, upon what research are these propositions founded? And how can we continue to advance research and this particular conceptual framework moving forward? I hope it's a place to begin a conversation, but that I don't want to assert that it's the end of the conversation along those lines. Um, and so that's one way that I hope that that folks will read our volume and will sort of understand the research. 
when we think about evidence, right, that critical question of who's evidence, who created the evidence, right, who are the people principally behind, you know, putting forth these research publications and upon what data are the, the assertions founded. And so um, I hope that folks will, will take a really critical stance as they move forward with this particular issue. And as they think about applying some things or just really investigating, uh, you know, what, what's the utility of, of these propositions? What's the utility of this evidence-based research in my practice as well? Now, I'm going to attempt to go back to two years ago, recognizing that um, this was pre-COVID and, and all the COVID stuff going on and sleepless nights with young children in just two years, trying to remember back. But I want to say that Susan and Kathy originally approached us with this idea of being called high-impact practices. And we had a lot of conversation about pushing back on that, which they were very acceptable toward uh, and amenable to. I should say that they're wonderful to, to work with in that regard. But, you know, I, I think our conversation around that at the time was sort of saying, okay, you know, high impact practices, people tend to go into sort of coups, the, the big 10 or, or whatever it is that he positioned several years ago. And we wanted to, we thought that even the name was limiting, right? Because there are, there are evidence-based practices, maybe not as much evidence or maybe not as mainstream or majority that we thought were important to highlight, like trauma-informed uh, pedagogy in community service learning work and, and that kind of stuff that um, we wanted to be able to highlight and not shut the door on or foreclose possibilities from the first three words in the title, right? And so we, we spent a lot of time talking around that because evidence-based practices helped us broaden the conversation and then really interrogate where does this evidence come from? Like Krista was saying, what's it built on? And just because uh, there's a majority of evidence coalescing around something doesn't mean that should be the only things we're paying attention to. It doesn't mean we shouldn't interrogate that. And so we really settled on, really liked this idea of evidence-based practices because it provided more opportunity and really helped us, in you know, you interrogate evidence. That seems like a shorter distance to critique than high-impact practices. High-impact practices in our, in our discourse, particularly in student affairs, has almost become evangelical in some ways. You just got to do it, man. If you're not doing high impact practices, what are you doing, right? If you don't have iPhone 12, what are you doing, right? And it's it's become evangelical in a sort. And I often like it to, to chicken noodle soup, which is everybody extols the virtues of chicken noodle soup whenever you get sick, right? At least in a Western context. We don't know, just whatever ails you, that's, that's what you need to do, right? And we sort of have that same thing with high impact practices. Whatever's got you down on your campus, just ramp up, turn the dial up on high impact practices. And we wanted to have this issue interrupt that kind of evangelicism that I think often accompanies high impact practices so that's what our, our kind of thinking was in, in the naming and then the framing of this. You know, I love that you shared that approach simply because we've all had those times where we've questioned whether or not this is going to work on our campus or questioned, you know, maybe it's questioning, you know, in some of those high impact practices situations, like who are they asking and are they reflective of the community that I work with? And, and 
you know, almost kind of once they're printed, are they out of date just because the world is changing so fast? And I feel like this gives us a, those that the leadership educators that are interested in change, it gives us a blueprint. Um, I think it also pairs with the fact that what COVID-19 has done is forced all faculty members, all program coordinators, you know, it really has forced us to look at and forced us to change our programs. And I don't think that that was something that people were really open to prior to COVID-19. Like I distinctly remember one of my colleagues saying, you know, we can't teach these classes online. And in order to stay viable, we had to teach all of our classes online. And so I just, I feel like, you know, this is kind of a roadmap for people who are interested in, you know, I've had these other thoughts around some of these high impact practices, evidence-based practices. Uh, how do I now go about learning more and possibly trying some things out? Um, do y'all have any specific recommendations for leadership educators? Like, you know, after reading and walk, uh, working with the uh you know, authors on these different papers, are there like specific things that stick out that you would, you know, almost give advice to other leadership educators about? That's a really, that's a good question. I, I think that throughout the, the chapters, there's a number of different things that come out and sort of bubble to the top. Um, but I'll just go back to those four propositions as a place to start a conversation. So one, how are you engaging students in the practice, the experience of leadership, as opposed to just reading the theories or conceptually, you know, abstractly understanding leadership as a concept, but how are you actually engaging students in the challenges of leadership? So for instance, in my uh, community leadership classes, we would have students engage in, you know, how do we develop communities? How are you going to develop a community in this classroom of 20 students? How are you going to bring hospitality to our space? How are you going to call out the specific strengths of the folks in our room? How are you going to engage people as we move forward as a community? Rather than just reading about community and learning some things that might be helpful in the future, right? We actually engage them. We look at them as we want you to practice these concepts in our classes together. And I feel like those experiences can extend beyond um, traditional academic classrooms, but can also go into leadership programs and workshops and trainings and so on. But it's really engaging students in the complexity of leadership that I think for me is, is a really big takeaway. Um, how are we encouraging students to work with others? and to wrestle with the complexity of working with team members, um, especially team members who have a, a different point of view and a different worldview and a different style. Um, you know, developing those relationships with others, I think, is especially critical and key. And that's sort of one of the biggest takeaways from leadership research from what we could tell was that those socio-cultural conversations, working, talking about diversity, working with others across diversity is incredibly impactful. And so really engaging students in that, that hard work um, is another big takeaway. Thinking about scaffolding tasks, right? And so in our leadership minor, we start with personal leadership. So learning about the self and then community and then working with others in society. And then we move to a global context. And that increased complexity of tasks, I think, is also something that can be um, managed in a variety of settings, but overall with an understanding that there's really no one size fits all approach, which I know is a challenging point of like a recommendation, right? But it's this idea of not assuming that if you have a, a single experience that students will all benefit ubiquitously from that experience. We just know that that's not a possibility. Um, so those are maybe some of the bigger takeaways as they relate to the conceptual framework that we developed. 
Um, but I, you know, I think overall, another, you know, that that final recommendation is just continue to critique and ask and interrogate, and really investigate. Um, for whom is this activity designed? Who is it designed by? Who's it designed for? What are those outcomes? Who's determining those outcomes? I think on a, on a broad base level, higher education institutions, you know, across the U.S. by and large are designed for and by people from privileged backgrounds, um, typically white folks, heteronormative, like there's all these different ways in which our institutions are perpetuating these constructs and, and these systems of power. And so how can leadership come in and insert itself and disrupt those systems and begin to ask questions like, what does leadership look like? Uh, for whom, you know, who, who gets to be a leader? How are we defining leadership? And asking students to engage in those critical questions, I think is also important. Lauren, I, I loved your question there. And it's got me thinking in multiple ways. And I'm very appreciative that Krista went first so I could collect my, my thoughts. Um, you know, I, I started with the MSL and got that first exposure back in 2006 too, when Denny Roberts was a grad assistant, came into my office and he's like, are you aware of this thing that's going on? And I said, no. And then uh, that was what I worked on when I was at Maryland when I was there. And I've been a um, program partner uh, up until this day working on it. But the one, one remarkable thing from 2006, that iteration up until the last iteration, the most potent thing that we found every single iteration of this study is that sociocultural issue conversations, conversations about and across differences are the most influential thing we can do for socially responsible shared leadership. That's it, right? And so if you want to boil this down to what should folks be doing, it's figuring out how those conversations are happening, who's having them, who's avoiding them, um, who's not having them, and how do we bolster them? One of the things that we, we know on uh, college campuses is that we have kind of this uh, this triangle where there's the civic engagement volunteer office over here, and they have some conversations about going out and making a difference in the world. We have the leadership office over here, and they have conversations about going out and make a difference in the world. And we have the multicultural diversity social justice office that has those same conversations about going out and making a difference in the world but never or rarely do the three talk together, right? And so, you know, we thought about when, when we were practitioners, well, Krista still, you know, I probably identifies more as, as a practitioner um, as having an administrative role, but sitting in those seats and, and having those um, pressures to put on programs that make a difference because we all want to be good stewards of money and tuition dollars and that sort of thing. And, for me, it, it's really talking to those practitioners and saying, hey, the, that three kind of uh, pronged triad there of those three different offices, the first step you could do is build better bridges between those three offices, right? Because we know that that matters tremendously. And we know that um, anybody doing leadership work or civic engagement work who's not talking about these real um, consequences of power and how we're all situated differently because of our social identities is having a very limited and harmful impact, right? And so for me, it's, it's if I wanted a starting place, if I was a practitioner um, or a new practitioner or somebody just getting into the field listening to this, I would latch right onto those sociocultural issues discussions 
and start thinking about what that looks like on my own campus and uh, interrogating or auditing um, how much I'm having conversations with these other offices that are directly related and trying to do inextricably linked outcomes to you. I love that you shared that. And, and simply because if nothing else, this year forced everybody to have those conversations. You could not ignore kind of what was happening because everybody was impacted in some way and bringing that into the classroom. And, and you know, and even to your point, Krista, you talked a little bit about, you know, like the, the genesis of leadership and some of the privilege. There are now conversations about the privileges that Black educated leaders have. So even me with my college degrees, identifying as a, a Black woman, I even bring certain privileges into the classroom. And years ago, that wasn't even in the conversation. And now there's some pushback on, well, you you need to make sure you're checking yourself as well. And, and the thing I love about my college students um, is that they already know diversity is important and it matters. And they're on kind of like the strategies part of it. So if anybody that's trying to work with them isn't you know in the boat with tactics and action and strategies, they're already gonna check out because they're they're already there and they're looking to us to move them forward. And so, you know, I, I love because this feels like an something that is so useful for leadership educators and it feels like the timing of it is so right. And so I, I love hearing that those recommendations that y'all have. Yeah, I mean just to piggyback on that and and thinking about how leadership educators may use the knowledge you know that they glean from 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 reading this this issue like what what are some of y'all's like hopes and dreams for how the issue will be used i mean you talk so much about and through some of these conversations and some of the the chapters just and and i remember john dugan talking about this at, at lei in 2018 just about the the dialogical nature of leadership education and like you know i couldn't agree more even though we interrogate discussion as pedagogy in our chapter um but this idea of it is through conversation it is through dialogue that we're going to develop these socio-cultural skill sets both through facilitating it as leadership educators but also like for our students it's engaging in that and you know, whether it be across cultures or across other domains. So I guess my question to y'all is like, how do you hope this will be, this information will be used? And like, how can we make sure that there are professional development opportunities for leadership educators to increase their capacity around these evidence-based practices? The, the ultimate thing I think I would love is for the practitioner who's sitting down and who is like, okay, you know, we've got to, I've gotten the charge, or I think it's important that we um, do some sort of mentoring pairing for students in the minor or students who are in this leadership living learning community. I would love nothing more for them to have that uh, moment and then somehow come across Lindsay and Hannah's chapter on mentoring because that's the nuts and bolts. They're saying, hey, look, here's what we know. Here are the pitfalls. Here are the ways that you can you're going to perpetuate or you could reify things. Um, but if if you um, read this chapter, that's this can help you build a stronger build on what we know works and experiment with things that maybe we don't know as much or give you some kind of influence on that. Same thing, you know, with somebody who hears this or comes across MSL studies and knows about the power of sociocultural issues conversations to pick up 
Jess and Natalie's chapter and, and say, oh, this is why it's potent. This is what I should be paying attention to. You know, I know Krista works uh, in uh, doing assessment work. One of the things we did is on our campus at Central Michigan University is we broke down who was having these conversations about and across difference. And that's a scale. And it asked questions about conversations about culture or race or different religions and that sort of thing. And we were finding that white students were anywhere from 10 to 40% less likely to be engaging in these conversations than their students of color counterparts. You know, th these are things that um, A, should be alarming um, to, to practitioners, even though many of us probably know this uh, to be true. Um, but this is what, you know, Jess and Natalie talk about in their chapter. And, and we're hoping that um, practitioners or even early researchers who are trying to settle on a topic and doctoral students or master students with their thesis, this could be kind of a quick one-stop shop, easier kind of read, plain kind of language, very accessible, that would center the main arguments and then point them in the directions of where they want to go. And I think if we accomplish that, then I think this thing would have some utility and some staying power rather than just lines on everybody's vitas, right? Yep, I also echo um, what Matt just shared and that ultimately it's the start of a conversation, um, but we hope that it's a conversation that other folks will take up and continue um, asking of their own practices, continue asking of others, continue you know seeking uh, for in research and as they're seeking evidence of the effectiveness of their own programs as well. So that it's not um, you know the, the definitive, like here are the things that you must do, but but um, you know, a start of a conversation in which ways are we engaging in these practices? Um, are these the right practices for our students? Um, there's a lot of, I think, really provocative information in some of the chapters, John Dugan's chapter with his colleagues at the Aspen Institute about um, critical leadership, Connor McLaughlin's chapter about disequilibrium, uh, V's chapter about self-authorship. There's so much richness in each one of those chapters that I think even taking just a moment to read through each one um, and see how those practices can apply to our own work is, is incredibly useful. Yeah, there's just, it's just, there's just so many great resources in, in this in this issue. And again, kudos to to y'all and to your to your team of, of contributors for, for putting this together. So for our listeners, you can check out this is evidence-based practices to strengthen leadership development. It's in new directions for student leadership. You uh, can be accessed through Wiley Online Library or through your institution's uh, online library services. And so you know, Chris and Matt, thank you so much for for joining us today. This this wraps up our episode of the Leadership Educator Podcast. And best of luck as you finish out your semesters and um, all the things you're doing at your institutions. We would love for you to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. That's Dr. Underscore Leadership. And uh, Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Mrs. Laura J-B. Um, and you can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. And we also encourage you to subscribe and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd also like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The 
support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in New Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matthew White, trumpeter, composer, and educator. And he's currently an associate professor of trumpet, coordinator of jazz and commercial music, and director of ensembles at Coastal Carolina University. You can check him out at www.mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thanks so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, thank you to the Association of Leadership Educators. Check out what ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. We hope you'll listen to our next episode wherever you get your podcasts. 